Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be joined by Zach Silverswag, the founder of Tiny Ivy, which is a new startup that has some interesting methods that we're going to talk to Zach about that help kindergartners and young children start to learn the English language. It's going to be a fun conversation, and I wanted to begin by welcoming Zach to the show. So, Zach, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Really excited to chat with you about what we're doing. Yeah, awesome. So, yeah, full disclosure, I think our listeners know this. I have a almost two-year-old son. So, if the content starts to skew towards earlier <laughs> yeah. uh, educational ventures, it's also because there is a lot of interest in the return on your educational dollar, focusing on early childhood education is something that uh, a lot of the research I've looked at has said, you get the most impact by moving as far upstream in, in our lives. So outside of it being somewhat self-interested as a dad, uh, it is also a space that I, I think it, there's growing interest. And I definitely wanted to get a little bit of your perspective, Zach, on what it's like to do a startup into this space, because I think it's probably different than working at other points in, in life. But, uh, but to begin with, we just wanted to get from you uh, your origin story. So how did we, you get to where you are uh, today? And how does that relate to what's new and emerging in the world uh, of learning and education? Yeah, great. When I have a two-year-old daughter as, uh, as well. So we're, we're in the same... Yeah, uh, same yeah I, I, I sense a play date in our future. Yes, yeah, <laughs> That's very likely. And really, so we have two children. My, my oldest is four. And my origin story was really his story of learning how to read. I'm, I'm an engineer, a product guy. I've been building products at technology companies for a long time. And so I, I always think that I have a unique way of looking at a user that's using a product and, and trying to tease out from that what works, what doesn't, what, what do we need to do to make them more successful. And that lens was on as I was teaching my son how to read. Right. Sure. He was three years old and we were doing letters and sounds and he learned all of his letters and sounds really fast and it was great. And so then I take out a book and the first book you take out starts uh, with once upon a time. Mm -hmm. And then you think about that word once. Yeah. And you think about how it sounds, right? The O makes a yeah. W sound and then a U sound. It makes two little sounds together. And the C makes the S sound. Yeah. And there's no hope that a child that doesn't already know that word is going to yeah. be able to sound it out. Yeah, the E is silent. At least the N is being very straightforward in there. So True. at least the N is not... Yeah. yeah. And, and it actually, it turns out that's the most common thing to do with an E. So generally, if you're teaching a kid, just tell them to skip all the E's and you're probably, <laughs> like, percentage-wise, you've got a better chance to, to be right using that strategy. Yeah. yeah. So he had learned his sounds, but he, he basically, that problem, it's not just in the storybook. It's not, it, it's almost every single word where... Uh, especially in early literature, where you're seeing common words and the common words are very difficult to sound out. So we often create these different strategies of teaching them the sight words. Tried doing that with my son for a bit. Memorizing sight words, rote memorization is not really a, a fun task for a three-year-old. Yeah, so right. I had this idea, which was to add some marks to the letters so that he could decode those words. Mm -hmm. And you think about the word was, where you have W-A-S, but it really is pronounced more like W-U-Z. Mm -hmm. So I added a, a symbol over the A, and I said, if you see this little mountain, make the uh sound. Yeah. And I added an accent mark over the S. I said, if you see an S with an accent, make the Z sound. Nice. And then the next time he saw that in print, he just went, was, was, and nice. moved on to the next word. And so it was literally like a light bulb went off for him and he hmm. was able to read what I gave him immediately. Yeah. So 
we started doing these like scavenger hunts where we would write little clues and he would read the clue and then go search for the object and follow this path. And he's three and a half when we were, it was just, it was just remarkable. So I took that idea. I got excited enough about it that I decided to start the company, went through a, you know, a couple of rounds of iteration and development and it eventually was able to pilot it at a school, an after school program in Harlem uh, that was part of a public school. And so I was working with a group of six students and a lot of these kids, I think, never got the right answer before on a reading worksheet. Mm-hmm. It was just a really challenging environment. It was very eye-opening for me to be in that community teaching those kids and to see what that was like. And what was incredible was that they had the same capability as my son. They were able to learn the letters and the sounds and all the tips that I had created at the time. They were able to sound out words, and through that, they were able to start reading. And they were yeah. having this really positive, successful experience that was really transformative uh, mm-hmm. for them. And, yeah, and that was, uh, that pilot started in January. That pilot ended around March 15th, back uh-huh. when everything shut down oh my goodness. for COVID. So yeah, yeah. we've had, we've had a, a long and windy journey as has the whole country through that the last uh, six to nine months. But yeah. at this point, we're, we're really excited about what we've done. We've created something that's truly unique. And while it started as a, a project that I was working on and just my own kind of dabbling, as I've spent the time and we've built the business, we've gotten connected with a whole network of researchers and individuals who have helped us uncover the research foundations behind what we're doing. Why does this work so well? Why, yeah. What is going on in, in a child's brain that uh, a language that's easy to decode is easier to learn than a language that's complex like like English is? Right. Um, and so we've just been, we've been working through that and, and there's a lot of potential, we're really excited. Yeah, yeah. And and then just to fully flesh out your origin story, you had founded another company prior, right? So like you, right. this is not your first rodeo as an entrepreneur. Can you talk about how this time is maybe a little bit different and how to connect the dots between the earlier stages of your career and where you are now and why Tiny Ivy, is, like what's the mission behind it and yeah. get into a little bit more of that? That's a, that's a great question. I think uh, my first company was a healthcare technology company, Cypher Health, and I I joined that company because I was a cancer survivor. I've always wanted to you know work in in an environment where we were doing good, we were acting for good, and so mm-hmm. I felt there I was able to you know build this business, but at the same time we were changing a lot of people's lives, we we're improving outcomes. So in that sense, the experience has been the same, in that we're we're still very mission driven here. I also think there were some similarities that I guess I forgot. It's very hard to build a business. It's really tough when you start out. Um, And especially when you're doing something new. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things about what we did at at Cyber was that we were really breaking new ground with how the patient should engage with their care. And before you have the research studies, you've got to convince folks to try it so that you can get the research studies. Yeah. And so, you know, that's really the phase that we're in now for Tiny Ivy is to try Mm -hmm. to get that early traction, get principals and teachers signed up to to try this in their schools so that we can demonstrate the results. And and so I think that's been a a really interesting dynamic. The other thing that a a lot of people say, uh, I'm sure, but when you live it twice, you realize it's just gold is how much everyone matters in building a company, how much your team matters, how much mm-hmm. all of your relationships and friends and contacts matter, yeah, yeah. whether they're in the space or not. You know, just being able to have that group that's that's providing input or helping mm-hmm. out or lending a hand. So we've I've had designers who I know that pinched in. I've had uh, engineers pinch in. So it's just been it's been a great reminder about how important it is to create that sort of personal community for yourself around. Yeah. 
because you, you never know how it's going to manifest itself when you're trying something new. Yeah, yeah. And then getting into the space, uh, I definitely, we're going to talk about diacriticals, I, I promised you when okay. we were prepping. Great. So we're going to come back to diacriticals in a second. But before we do, what is the space like? Because this is an interesting time uh, for parents to be thinking about their children. Everyone's talking about learning loss and how do I keep up? It's, you know, you're in New York, I'm in New York. It's very competitive universe here. Uh, and People want to figure out how to get ahead. Uh, and then if I understand, I stand, understand where you're heading uh, here correctly. You, you want to make sure you're focused on the kids who really would benefit the most from these types of tools. So I'd love to hear more about what is early childhood education as a space like to get into? Uh, what have been your observations so far? And then you're not too far in, a little bit over a year in terms of this startup, but what have you learned so far and where are you focusing your energy uh, moving forward? My biggest observation around what it's like to get started in, in early education is that the teachers are very aware of what works and what doesn't work. The teachers are this fantastic sounding board for whether or not something is going to be effective or not. They have a ton of pattern recognition around what's worked. They've tried it with hundreds of kids. Mm -hmm. And we've done a lot of thinking about you know whether how to position the work that we're doing for parents and for schools and what the difference is between the two. And they really have, although we're all trying to get to the same place of let's teach these young kids how to read, the standpoint of each of those two different audiences is really different. And especially now with COVID, I think parents with kids that are doing virtual schooling, as much as there is a, a fear about learning loss, there's also this tremendous personal weight of how challenging the life is with COVID, right? Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. sort of the, the difficulty of just getting the child to school and yeah. kind of all of the other sort of lack of social connection. Like the whole child kind of thing. Yeah, really, yeah. Yeah. So that's really tough. But I think what's what stood out for, for us, at least as a highlight, is that as teachers who are real experts in early childhood education and who have experience teaching hundreds of kids to read. And one of the teachers that we, were, that we have in our founding educator program, her name is Emma, and she represents a real microcosm of the country. She has a very economically diverse class, and she knows when she walks into class at the beginning of her school year that there's going to be about 12 kids that are not going to be successful. And she just knows that from her history. And so yeah. I think, you know, that's awareness and deep understanding that's that's been built through practice of there's there is this gap like kids are not learning how to read most kids that many of the kids that listen to the of the parents that listen to this podcast are, are going to learn how to read one, yeah. one way or another but i think when you get into the communities that have low literacy levels and that have schools that are less funded and different types of populations that's where you start to see that this it's really a dichotomy and there's a lot of kids that aren't successful what's been exciting is that the teachers seem really open to that concept we're just now getting to the place where we're having those conversations with principals and administrators and district level people. And I think there's, uh, there's probably some learning on my part as to how to yeah. continue to knock down that door and, and have that conversation. But yeah. for me, it's a very, it's a long game. I think mm -hmm. a lot of businesses are viral for, for us, it'll take six months or a year to really prove to that first group of teachers that started this summer that this thing works. Right. So we've just got to be patient. We've got to let people go through the same experience that I went through with my son, that my family members have gone through with their kids that have used the system, that yeah. the first handful of parents have gone through using the system and, and continue to find ways to share the results. Because the, the results, I think, are what are really going to set us apart. I think we really have the potential to be an order of magnitude 
you know, uh, faster, better, easier than the uh, competing programs. That's awesome. Yeah, and I do want to get into that. And I think I can hear my son uh, crying. And he wants to, he's yearning so much for the tiny ivy, he's starting to cry out, which is, <laughs> he's still too too young, Matthew, there'll be time. But uh, but yeah, we did want to, I did want to get into, because I think it's fascinating, some of the complexities around the English language. I know one of the things that I've always been amazed to learn is the number of vowel sounds that are represented by, what is it, Five and a half, five and a half vowels. Is right. that how many we have? So that led you to come up with this idea of put a put some sort of diacritical, some sort of marks above the different letters that would signify the actual uh, phonics that are associated with that character. I've been fascinated by diacritical since I was a kid, and especially in French. The, the thing on top, the little hat on top of the O. Yep. Circumflex. Uh, circumflex. Love me some circumflex. The different accents. I always thought that was probably around seventh or eighth grade when I was learning French. I, when I discovered diacriticals, I was like, why doesn't English have this? And don't even get me started on the, the, the umlaut, which is a whole, it's just <laughs> fun to say. It's like a, it's a heavy metal band waiting to be formed. But, but in terms of diacriticals, I'd love to get some of your perspective because you probably... I guess you stumbled into this a little bit, like you figured out how to teach your son and then you realized there's a lot more depth uh, yeah. behind it? Or can you yeah, talk a little more about that? Yeah, that's, exa that's exactly how it kind of went down. So there we were, we had invented this set of diacritics that you could use. And, and I think your description was right. The, the whole concept was that the Y in my and the I in ice cream make the same sound. Right. right. Those things make the same sound. They look different. And the Y doesn't always make that sound. And the I doesn't always make that sound. They can both make lots of different sounds. Yeah. And so it's this, I think the real complexity is the many to many connection between mm -hmm. what the letters are and what sounds they're supposed to make. We have 44 sounds in English. We've got 26 letters. Right. But we combine them. And, and in the technical work, there's 240 different ways in which we combine our letters to make graphemes mm -hmm. that make different sounds. Yeah. And even with that system and pages and pages of rules, in order to read in English, you still need to memorize all of the exceptions. So it's even with all of that complexity, there's still you know, a lot of exceptions. I think what was interesting for us was looking at how kids learn to read in technically orthographically transparent languages. So languages yep. where the, the writing system and the sounds that you make and the letters that you see are really tightly connected. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that, and you think about the learning load required. So let's say that you're learning Spanish. In Spanish, the letters, names, and their sounds are the same, right? They all have this, the one sound, and they're going to make that one sound 99.9% you know, yeah. of the time. Mm -hmm. And so it's really easy for children to decode words. And what happens is that as they do that decoding process, they actually develop some of the other skills that we have to teach explicitly. Mm -hmm. So if you talk to an early you know, education specialist about how kids learn how to read, they'll talk about phonemic awareness being the first skill that you need to focus on and build. But it actually is a little bit more of a derivative in some of these other languages. In some other languages, you learn how to decode the words and then you gain phonemic awareness just by the nature of the language being simple to process. Interesting. The most interesting examples, right, and it all comes back to numbers. It's like how much, so how much faster is it? In Hebrew, kids that are learning to read, learn to read with a system that's very similar to what we were proposing here and what we're doing here. There's a, a series of dots that are added to each of the uh, characters that give you the sort of the guide so that you want to pronounce when you come across that letter. Mm -hmm. And if you take an English, native English speaker, and you teach them Hebrew, at the end of a year of instruction of Hebrew, if you, you start this at, uh, at first grade, by the end of the first year of instruction in Hebrew, they'll read in Hebrew 
more accurately than they will in English in grade five, hmm. even though they're native English speakers. Wow. Right? That study for me was one of the most powerful because I think what people fall back on when they try to analyze why is there such an achievement gap? Why are so many kids not able to read on grade level? They think about socioeconomic factors. They think about class sizes. They think about the means that we're using to teach the kids. There's mm -hmm. lots of different things that, that come up. But here you have a case where we've got a study that's controlling for all of that, where the exact same students who already have a certain intelligence level that have a family that's reading to them at a certain level, yeah. all those factors are controlled. And the language alone can drive a five-year delta in reading accuracy. Wow. Yeah. Right. And when, and when you look at Spanish or Dutch and you do, there's a lot of different ways that people have analyzed this complexity of the languages across each other. And that's pretty new research, actually. This topic was only, you know, really started to be studied in depth in the last like 15 years, whereas okay. a lot of the methods for teaching English have been studied for 70 years or 80 mm -hmm. years or longer. Mm -hmm. And and the results are just crystal clear that English is a difficult language to learn precisely because of the spelling and, yeah. and what that does to it. So we were actually, we were really, I didn't, I didn't mention this before a couple, we had, uh, uh, we were really excited because uh, Dr. David Scher, who's one of the world's leading researchers on this particular topic is now one of our advisors. Oh, and so great. we, but, you know, I guess it's, it just points to the fact that there really is this challenge that sits within our alphabet fundamentally. And so mm. if you can find a way to make that process easier, then all of the underlying research supports that it could be two or three or four times easier to learn how to read in English, Yeah, which would, yeah. Which would be world changing. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to get into where you see this, what's the, what's a beautiful tomorrow. If you look three to five years out, which it sounds like right now you're in the early stage, you're trying to find the adoption. And then we're, you know, you want to get the validation through the actual research timeline, which is going to take, probably a year or two from where we are today to start to see some of those results coming in. Although you can see the value, you just need to get it validated through, through the research. Is yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. The teachers that are using it within, it's usually around week four, where somebody, where the light goes on and they realize how much different, how much better this is than the methods that they've been using. Yeah. You, there's sort of two tracks. One track is that you're learning the letters and the sounds. The other is that students are learning how to blend those sounds together to make different words. And the blending is actually, a, it's a complex skill and it takes time and energy to learn how to blend. And then you've got to memorize a certain number of these tips. Mm -hmm. But as that comes together and then the kids can start to decode virtually every word that you would give them, it's really an amazing feeling. And yeah. so I think we do have a lot of anecdotal evidence related to that moment. And we're, we have a lot of teachers now that are in that sort of uh, period where they've seen it work. And so they're really mm -hmm. excited about it. They know that when we get to the end of our 12 week assessment, we're going to have some awesome data. Yeah. Um, but again, it's a 12 week assessment. So it takes some time for us to build to the place where we're going to be testing the kids again and, and getting that. Mm -hmm. um, we are really hopeful. We've definitely had uh, a lot of interest from different schools around finding ways to pilot it and trial it and get teachers familiar with the program. And so that's really our hope right now is that we can just find as many you know, schools across the country that are interested in, with, even with a small sample set of students, just giving this new thing a try. Yeah. Um, because we think that the proof is in the pudding. After you do that for four weeks, you'll be converted. You'll be a tiny IV you know, stalwart. Yeah, yeah. And then, so folks, if they're interested, if they want to find out more, they should go to tinyivy.com. Yeah, tinyivy.com would be the best place to, to go. Awesome. And and then 
your focus, as you mentioned, is more on the school side. You want to understand maybe underserved populations, uh, traditionally socioeconomically challenged. Maybe their parents aren't able to spend as much time with them yeah. uh, growing up. So you want to target uh, target the, the school as the, the vehicle for the program. Can you talk just a little bit, just briefly, about why it's hard to get the change to happen here and, and any insight you might have around how you're thinking we may start to shift into different sort of adoption because it seems yeah. like it's a relatively uh, rigid space. Like people are used yeah. to, they know what they know, there's a way to do it. And introducing something new, not genuinely novel, can be challenging. So I'd love to get a little right. bit of your perspective from that. Yeah, and yeah, I think it's, it's definitely, it's always a challenge. It's always a challenge to try to have someone use something new. And, and I think depending on the profession as well, if you're an engineer, you're using new stuff every single day. You're used to the next generation of React or Angular coming out and trying something new. Yeah. Most professions deal with a lot of rapid change in them. Whereas teaching, the, a lot of the tool set up until nine months ago has been static for, for a long, long, long time. Yeah, yeah. And what that means is that you go to, and, and, and it takes some time to get your teaching degree as well. So as you become you know, a, a teacher, you're going to a master's program, you're being taught by other teachers that were teaching for a long time. Everybody's very invested in, in the methods that they've used. The other thing that happens is that most teachers have seen something work. And when they've seen that one thing work, even if it's with a subset of the population, they, they know at least that that could work for that subset. And so there's a lot of commitment to maintaining that approach. What I think is really important about the moment that we're in is the number of students that are being left behind through virtual schooling and through the closures that we have. At the same time that you have this clear challenge for the kids, you also have a financial challenge because the state budgets are gonna to be totally strapped. Yep. You have additional costs from PPE. So there's, there are these, these kids are farther behind than they've ever been. You've always been trying to catch them up and haven't been able to. And now you have less resources to bridge that gap. Yeah. Where I think Tiny Ivy can be really helpful and can come in is that we believe because of the way the system is, because all of the complexity lies in our language itself, it lies mm -hmm. in the tips itself, and we're building mm -hmm. some digital tools to teach it that are incredibly powerful. It should be something that you can adopt as a school at an incredibly low cost and still manage to pull these kids all the way out of that learning loss and get them to far beyond where mm -hmm. we would have gotten if we hadn't been going through this period of time. Yeah, I'm hopeful that you know, this last six months as everybody's been figuring out virtual schooling and virtual learning and trying to come up with a safe path to get teachers and children together, which is, it's the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's the most important stuff that we have to do. And you can't yeah. focus on anything else beyond that. But I do think as we get into January, February, March of next year, as the vaccine comes out and starts to, we start to return to some kind of normal, we're going to see how far back the kids are. We're going to see how strapped yeah. from a resource perspective we are. And so I'm hoping that together creates a moment where there's just open-mindedness to try something new. Yeah. And, you know, if we come out of that and the kids that we're working with are really performing at this 2X, 3X, 4X standard, uh, I think there's a lot of potential for the business. Yeah. No, I appreciate, uh, pre appreciate the perspective. And I saw, I saw you, your blog posts are really interesting. Folks can find them on uh, tinyiv.com. But I saw you write also about uh, dyslexia and trying to understand uh, learning disabilities. Can you talk briefly about that? Yeah, this is, again, one of these studies that a lot of these studies, I feel like they're written and they go on a shelf and no one knows what to do with them because the, the root cause they talk about seems 
impossible to change, right? English spelling is hard. Okay, great, but what can I do about that? There's been a lot of work that looks at dyslexia, and dyslexia is really a problem of the brain. It's a problem in how you translate the, the images that you're seeing into sounds that you're saying. And when you look at like an MRI scan, you see uh, the people with dyslexia, their, their brains light up in different ways and consistently. They've got a, a physical challenge in reading. When you take children that have this challenge and you look at them in an English-speaking country versus a country like Italy, which is that the same exact inability, right, the same exact brain function in one country results in extraordinarily high levels of dyslexia that are noticeable and are, you can work through them, but they're really, they're a lifelong disability that can really uh, create a lot of these challenges. Versus in Italy, the problem happens half as much, Hmm. a third as much. And so I think what's so interesting to me is that if you're trying to teach somebody something that's hard, it's it's very likely that a lot of people are not going to be able to understand that. Whether they have a physical uh, disability or they don't have as much education from, they don't have as much time with a teacher, it's just harder so fewer people are gonna be successful. Mm-hmm. When the language itself is easier, even if you have those same challenges, even if you don't have enough time, even if your parents aren't reading to you every single night, even if you have dyslexia, the physical problem, you still may be able to achieve levels of literacy where, where that problem is uh, at least diminished, if not completely overcome. Yeah. And so I, I think, again, this is where TIPS comes in because we're just shifting the whole curve of difficulty for, our, for the language. So yeah. whether you've got any of those challenges, you're just able to, to read easier, right? It's yeah. just it's a little bit easier. Yeah, just be clear, um, TIPS is the Tiny Ivy Phonics System. Is that right? Yeah, we, we, yeah. I, I did prep with you before, so I, <laughs> I did just pick that up uh, off the top of my head. So yeah, and if folks check out tinyiv.com. Also, I would say if you can track down some of the ideas Zach's been putting out there, it's interesting to see the him throw himself into this new space and, and start uh, blogging about it. There's some interesting uh, perspectives, so I do appreciate you putting that stuff out there. While we still have you, and before we wrap up, I always love to ask my guests what other trends out there in the world around you now as someone who's a serial entrepreneur, what's new, what's, what are you seeing out there in the world, what's on the horizon, what's emerging that is capturing your imagination, we're a trend spotting show, doesn't have to be about phonics, doesn't have to be about early childhood, it could be about anything, what's capturing your imagination these days? I think the most interesting thing that's happening right now, it's really a fundamental change in entrepreneurship. The quality and availability of tools to build what you imagine is has just exponentially increased. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I started building apps with engineers 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and that was a lot better than punch cards and everything else that yeah. anybody who's been around for decades longer than I have would talk about. But the change between when I started at the, the healthcare company and, and where we are today and what you can create what you can leverage. Uh, we just did a, we got a really nice uh, blog post uh, from Contentful, which is a, a resource that we're using. And they saved us months of development and, they, and it was free. You could just sign up and then you get a free trial version and the trial covers what you need. So I think there's these tools and things working together that allow you to produce so much faster and create so much faster. Mm-hmm. And so that has me really excited and, and hopeful for being an entrepreneur. Cause I also think there are elements that make it they make it tougher. You're going up against bigger competition. Mm-hmm. The competition's more established. Everybody's very good at advertising and breaking through the sort of advertising universe and, and getting your brand to, to get attention is, is always going to be tough. So having a great product mm-hmm. that can drive that, I think is really important and it's easier to do that than ever. And then I, I'm always, I just, I love VR. 
I just yeah. love VR. Uh, to, to you know, because I, I feel like there's an important part of that question, which is what's in my soul. I yeah. just love VR. I love this idea that there there's potential to explore reality. And I do think that what's happening with COVID, where so many people are at home, pushes the pedal a little bit and gives some gas to that idea. We'll see what's created out of that. And I, and I don't think it's developmentally appropriate for kids under six. So I yeah, we'll hold off on the lucky. tiny IV visor yeah. just yet, but, but we'll see. Yeah, you never, we'll see. you never know. Zach Silverswag, thanks very much for your time. And thanks very much for the work you're doing to help uh, kids learn how to read. And uh, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. And for our listeners, thanks as always uh, for listening. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. If you like what you're hearing, uh, write us a review, tell your friends. Please keep on listening. We'll be back again soon.